Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon, um, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon to our listeners at home. Uh, my name is Dan Dever, and I am here with Dr. James Booth, the Patricia N. Rhodes Hart Professor of Educational Neuroscience in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the Peabody College here at Vanderbilt University. Uh, Dr. Booth, I'm going to give you a little bit of a red carpet here uh, layout. Uh, Dr. Booth is the Principal Investigator at the Brain Development Lab where his research interests span between language to reading to mathematics in typical and atypical populations. He also has a two decade streak of continuous funding over 180 publications across the board, has served as the department chairperson and is now beginning new interesting research on the deaf and hard of hearing community. Say hello, Dr. Booth. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk with you a little bit today about what's going on in the lab. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, before we get into what we're doing, uh, before we get into uh, the research that's uh, being done on the deaf and hard of hearing community, um, I'd first like to know a little bit more about, uh, you know, your position, uh, how long you've been in that position. Just uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a, a professor here of psychology and human development, uh, and I'm director of the uh, brain development uh, laboratory. I've been here for, well, about three and a half years now. I arrived in um, 2017. And um, what got you interested in the study of reading and uh, you know, language and math? Yeah, so I started early. Started when I was an undergraduate uh, at University of Michigan. I had a research experience there, looking at cross-cultural differences in uh, academic achievement, and it really um, kind of developed my interest in individual differences. So uh, I went on to pursue a PhD uh, at uh, University of Maryland really focused on um, yeah, individual differences in uh, reading skill, what makes some people great readers and other people not so great uh, readers. And at the time, uh, I was very interested in um, the brain basis of reading. And that was the kind of mid 1990s uh, when uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, first started to be used uh, to look uh, kind of inside the brain non-invasively. So I did a postdoc um, at um, Carnegie Mellon uh, where I um, looked at language disorders. Uh, and then after that, I continued on um, to uh, look at um, uh, look at a variety of populations when I started my first um, faculty position uh, as a professor. Wow, a long time in the, um, relatively in the same, in the same part of the uh, field. Very cool, very cool. Um, so what got you interested now with this new project, uh, looking at individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing? It sort of sounds like you've answered that question about typical versus atypical populations and individual differences. But if there's anything else you want to mention on that, 
um, and more than happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I first became interested in it because I was um, kind of poking around uh, the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communication Disorders website, uh, and they had a strategic plan, and they really emphasized uh, a priority area of literacy in the uh, deaf and hard of hearing. Uh, and at the time, actually, I was at University uh, of Texas at Austin, and uh, they had a, a very strong um, sign language linguistics uh, group uh, there, and we started to collaborate. Uh, and I was really uh, kind of puzzled with, um, um, you know, why some children uh, with hearing loss really excel uh, at reading uh, and others don't. So there you have my interest in individual differences there again. So I became really interested in that, that question. Uh, and if you think about it, um, you know, individuals um, um, who don't have access to spoken language, if they have to learn how to read, it's kind of like learning um, another writing system, uh, not knowing the sounds <laughs> of the mm. letters. So, you know, think about trying to learn, for example, Cyrillic, which is a Russian uh, alphabet without knowing how it sounds. Uh, so somehow you have to map uh, the meaning of words directly to the spelling. So that, um, that really fascinated me. And um, so we developed this, this project um, collaboratively. And um, you know, in, the, in the kind of middle of it, I moved to Vanderbilt University. And I'm, so I'm still collaborating with these folks uh, in Austin, but um, I've, um, uh, I have many other collaborators on the project as well. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, that definitely sounds uh, like it would be uh, more than just a small challenge, right, to, to be someone who's trying to, to, to read a language without knowing what the language sounds like. That's a, that's a good uh, way to describe it. Yeah. Um, so, so more on the project, uh, I'd like to, to break it down into um, what it is that you're doing, why we're doing it, and then the impact of it as well um, okay. uh, for the people who are, who are immediately affected. So um, you've given us a bit of an overview of the project and who you're working with, um, but if you could go into more detail about uh, the specifics about how uh, you know, we're doing what we're doing, um, what technology we're using, uh, anything like that. Yeah, so uh, the overall question uh, is to look at, you know, what um, brain mechanisms better readers rely on. Uh, word recognition is a really complicated process involving many different components. Uh, so um, your knowledge of spelling patterns, your knowledge of sound patterns, your knowledge of the meanings of words. Um, so we're really interested in, um, uh, you know, what components better readers rely on when they're processing uh, words. And does this depend upon um, the communication background of the individual? So we're very interested in um, those who predominantly use sign language, those who predominantly use oral language, and um, those uh, individuals that we call bimodal, so they use some kind of mix of uh, oral language and um, signed uh, language. So in our study, uh, children are given a battery of um, kind of uh, standardized tests. These tap into their knowledge of English, uh, their knowledge of sign language, uh, some general cognitive ability measures. Uh, and then um, 
And then children are scanned at the uh, MRI center when performing uh, reading tasks. Uh, and we also scan them uh, when they do a variety of um, localizer tasks to tap into the underlying mechanisms involved in uh, reading. So uh, as I said, the overall goal is to kind of understand, um, you know, kind of how um, some, some children really excel at reading and what mechanisms they use. Hmm. Yeah, I, um, in my undergrad, uh, we, you know, read, read some studies here and there on, uh, uh, you know, deaf and hard of hearing children. Um, a lot of the time uh, participants are cochlear implanted. So, um, you know, therefore obviously you can't put someone in uh, to an MRI. Um, so, you know, is, does the fact that we're, that we're not using uh, uh, implanted children in this study, does that lead to some new findings, do you think? Do you think that um, that, that makes it uh, different in any way? Has anyone else done something like this before, anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that is one way that the project is relatively unique because if you look at a lot of the studies out there, they are with uh, children who uh, are um, implanted with um, um, cochlear implants. And uh, a lot of the work focuses on uh, kind of predicting who's going to have the best you know, outcome after the uh, cochlear uh, implant. So yeah, an exclusionary criteria for participating in our study is that um, kids um, can't have the cochlear implant because uh, we wouldn't be able to um, scan them. There's actually, I guess, one uh, brand, uh, or maybe there are more now that you can uh, image kids, but um, it has to be done at a very low magnet strength, um, lower than what would be useful for us in terms of our, uh, our uh, study. It's not that you know kids won't have amplification. Uh, so many of the kids, um, I guess, who uh, have a predominantly oral background, those kids will um, um, have hearing aids often. Uh, so, um, so a subset of our kids will certainly uh, have some kind of uh, amplification. Okay. Um, great. Great. So uh, we've we've talked a lot about uh, the what. Um, I think that that gives us a a good compass of what it is that we're doing. So now um, I'd like to talk about the why. Um, why is it important? Uh, why are we doing this? Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, sort of why why it's important and and uh, what can be gained uh, out of this. Um, yeah, so um, in terms of why it's important uh, topic to study, mm -hmm. um, the, the one reason that it's very important is that, yeah, there are large individual differences in, um, in uh, reading for sure, uh, but overall kids um, who are uh, deaf and hard of hearing um, uh, have a kind of 
um, a lower than average uh, reading skill. So I think there's some estimates out there that the average reading level of uh, children who are deaf and hard of hearing is a fourth grade reading level. Uh, of course, some kids really excel, other kids, you know, um, uh, other kids struggle. So it's really uh, important for us to understand the underlying kind of mechanism so that we can more effectively design uh, interventions for, uh, for these uh, kids. Another important aspect of the study is um, that it's longitudinal. Um, so we're going to use brain and behavioral measures uh, to try to predict um, uh, which children will excel in the future, but also to predict um, which children will fall behind. Uh, so if we can predict who's going to excel and who's going to fall behind, then this work has direct implications for designing uh, methods for early identification uh, of, uh, of reading difficulties. So it sounds like there's a, there's a clear link between the, the basic research and then the, the practical end of things and really implementing it uh, uh, in schools, right? That's, that uh, it sounds like there's a, there's a clear, clear direct link there. That's great. Ah, uh, yes, we hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so um, I'd like to uh, touch on um, those individual differences and uh, uh, deaf and hard of hearing kids' a range of reading levels. Um, just from my own personal experience as well, uh, I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, which has about 1,200 uh, deaf students there. And in terms of individual differences, at that university, there's... Um, it's a pretty even split uh, just from, you know, anecdotally seeing uh, um, there's about 600 of those students are primarily signers and then the other 600 are primarily, um, you know, oral, uh, uh, just English speakers who don't really know sign language. So, you know, trying to um, understand the best way to accommodate both of those groups and trying to understand um, uh, the, the best ways that we can um, uh, help those groups to excel um, in their education is, is uh, I think, critical. And I, it starts, you know, at an early intervention. Um, so I think this, this study is going to help them out, too, uh, uh, in the long run. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the uh, one way that the, um, the work is innovative is, um, you know, that we use these uh, localizers that I referred to uh, before. Um, so certainly we give kids reading tasks in the scanner, uh, but reading tasks, as I said, are very complicated and you can engage a whole host of processes, even when you're processing a single word. Uh, so what we additionally do is we, um, you know, we give these so-called localizers, uh, which tap into the underlying mechanism. So one localizer we have is a, a sign language localizer. So we tap into information about location, hand position, and movement. We also have um, a speech reading localizer, which taps into sensitivity to lip movements. We have a phonology and semantics localizer, which require rhyming and meaning judgments uh, to, um, to pictures. Uh, so the idea is that we independently localize these mechanisms and then we see what mechanisms um, um, better readers are relying on uh, uh, when they're um, doing the, um, the, the, the word recognition tasks uh, in the scanner. So 
At this point, we actually know nothing about the brains of kids uh, who are deaf and hard of hearing uh, uh, you know, when they're doing reading tasks. Uh, this would be the first uh, study looking at uh, developmental uh, changes. But if we know what mechanisms better readers rely on, then that has direct, I think, um, kind of impact or um, has direct implications for how we teach reading to individuals uh, who are deaf and hard of hearing. So for example, if we know that better readers who used sign language engage sign language mechanisms, uh, one should focus on building their language skills in sign language. Uh, and if we know that better readers who predominantly use oral language engage uh, speech reading mechanisms, then we may wanna add um, uh, additional training to sensitivity to lip movements, for example. So knowing the underlying uh, mechanisms would be very helpful in terms of informing, uh, informing the teaching of reading. Great, great. Um, so the last section out of the big three, um, impact, which we've already touched on a little bit here. Um, uh, uh, We've already talked about how this research is going to have implications for um, deaf and hard of hearing children and then into uh, later in life uh, as they you know, grow and as they uh, get more and more educated. Um, but I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, how this research is going to, it sounds to me like it's going to really propel um, uh, research in this field further, right? As the, as the, you know, the landmark first of its kind, um, do you think that it'll get picked up uh, by others in the field as well to, to continue to do this research so we can learn more and more um, about how uh, deaf and hard of hearing children's brains uh, uh, operate? Yeah, I mean, I hope it has, um, I hope it has applied um, uh, aspects uh, to it, you know, in terms of informing identification and intervention, but I also hope that it has um, uh, an impact on the development of, you know, theoretical models of <clears throat> reading in the brain. Um, so we know quite a bit uh, about um, the kind of so-called reading network uh, in the brain. And hopefully uh, this work on uh, children who are deaf and hard of hearing will kind of inform and extend that model. So there's pretty widespread agreement nowadays that there's a kind of um, a superior or it's called a dorsal stream and an inferior or a ventral stream. The dorsal stream seems to be involved in mapping uh, spellings to their sounds. So um, in accessing phonology of the language. So this project is gonna help us determine uh, whether uh, the phonology of um, spoken language, of sign language and visual language rely on the kind of the same um, mechanisms in this pathway or whether they rely on different mechanisms. Um, and in terms of the ventral stream, uh, the idea here is that that stream is involved in mapping spellings to their meanings. Uh, so um, hopefully this project will help us determine kind of the nature of those mappings to word meanings and whether it's influenced by 
language background. Um, so we may see that children who are uh, deaf and hard of hearing, maybe they rely more uh, on this ventral pathway, which is involved in kind of directly mapping the visual word forms to their meaning. Uh, because some of these individuals have less, less access to the phonology in the uh, spoken language. So yeah, I mean, the, the hope is that the project will have a basic science uh, um, uh, implication and also an applied uh, implication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so um, sort of like uh, it's seeing seeing the word VV thought is that uh, um, an individual who uses sign language is going to see a word and then immediately go to the meaning judgment of it instead of the phonology of it. Correct? Is that, is that, uh, that's the a, idea. A There's a couple studies out there uh, suggesting that that may be the case in, um, in adults. Uh, so there is, a, you know, an MRI study out there, and there's also uh, an uh, ERP study out there that just came out actually this this week, uh, you know, suggesting that that's uh, the case. We don't know um, whether it's true in kids, and we don't really know how it's like systematically related to reading skill, and we don't really know how it's related to communication background. So the overall idea would be yes, uh, on average, kids who are um, you know deaf and hard of hearing, um, you know uses ventral stream more than the dorsal stream, but that certainly could depend upon um, their skill level and also their communication background. So many questions. So yes, time, lots right? of questions. <laughs> So, uh, uh, Dr. Booth, I'd also like to ask a little bit more about the project. Um, if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, where we collect this data from and um, where people can learn more about it uh, um, uh, and uh, who, who can participate, I guess, uh, is, you know, the, the overall thing we'd like to know about. Yeah. Um, yeah, we collect all the data here uh, at Vanderbilt University. Uh, all the behavioral testing occurs at Peabody College. Uh, we have a, a mock MRI, um, a fake MRI here in the lab where we get kids used to, the, you know, uh, the scanner environment. And then we go over to the uh, Institute of Imaging Science, which is just across the street uh, to collect the, the kind of real MRI uh, data. Families have a great time participating in our studies. They learn a lot about research. Uh, and I think they also learn about, a bit about themselves. Uh, we are actually recruiting uh, families from, um, from Nashville, but actually we're recruiting families all over the country. So about half of our participants will come from uh, from outside of Nashville, and uh, we have support to fly families in uh, to participate in our study for um, you know two or two or three days. So uh, it could be an exciting uh, uh, weekend getaway for a family. Yeah, to come to Nashville and do a little bit of science uh, along the way. Um, so we've already had people come from. Uh, uh, from New York, we've had people come from uh, Atlanta, we've had people come from uh, uh, North Carolina, 
Uh, we actually have an advisory panel of folks uh, who will be helping with recruitment, but it's not confined to these states. So of course, our, uh, our collaborator, David Quinzos Pozos at the University of Texas. Um, uh, we have Amy Letterberg at Georgia State University. Uh, we have Susan uh, Nittauer at uh, University of Florida. Um, who else? Uh, Aaron Shield at Miami University and Naomi Caselli at Boston University. So they'll be helping uh, with the project, uh, but our uh, recruitment out of, outside of Nashville is not limited to those, uh, to those states. Um, so we're really excited to be able to do that. Uh, of course, you can find out, ab out about us um, uh, from our website. Just search Brain Development Laboratory. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter uh, uh, account. And um, yeah, if you'd like to send us an email, you can reach us at braindevelopmentlaboratory at gmail.com. Uh, and who doesn't want an all expenses paid <laughs> trip to Vanderbilt and to Nashville, right? Sounds like a good time to me. And then uh, uh, the kids get to say uh, an image of their brain too at the end of it, right? They do. Uh, they'll get an image of their brain. Uh, and uh, we also will supply them with the, the testing that we do, some of the standardized testing. Um, families will just have to sign an additional release for that information. Um, so um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. And also, uh, as I said, they learn a little bit about themselves as well. There you go. All right. Um, I think that's all of the questions I have uh, for you. Okay, great. Well, I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask uh, about you, uh, right. Dan, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to learn uh, more about how you became interested in this area uh, of research. Yeah, sure. So um, my uh, interests come originally uh, spawning from a uh, more personal end rather than a uh, uh, academic end. Um, I am hard of hearing myself, uh, completely deaf in one ear, completely hearing in the other ear. Um, uh, that's why I only wear the one headphone. Um, so uh, to me, the, the project is... Um, interesting from obviously the the academic lens of and the, the scientific lens of learning more about uh, the brain and the the neural basis of it and how reading gets mapped in in different subgroups of individuals um, but more than that uh, uh, it's personal in the sense that uh, as a member of the heart of hearing community and then also um, I'm a ASL interpreter as well uh, that's what I went to school for originally um, uh, so having both of those things uh, in tandem with each other, I see um, the uh, uh, language deprivation and the language delay uh, and the um, poor reading outcomes of a lot of these uh, deaf and hard of hearing kids. Um, and uh, for, for me, it, it feels like it doesn't have to be that way. Um, if we would, could just learn a little bit more information about why this is happening, um, uh, and I think that just a little bit of that information over just a few years um, will have, you know, long lasting uh, 
great uh, improvements and great impact on the community um, that I get to call as my own. So uh, that's sort of why uh, I got in, why I wanted to be involved. And, uh, you know, when, when you asked me um, if I wanted to be part of the team, I, it was an immediate yes in my head. Um, uh, I didn't want to, you know, send off an immediate email back and seem desperate for the position, but I was definitely uh, uh, on board as soon as you offered it to me. So, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have you. Um, your background is definitely a real asset uh, to the to the project. Um, your background, of course, straddling kind of um, two worlds, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. will be very helpful um, in the sense that we're interested in folks with different communication backgrounds. Uh, so folks who are predominantly sign, folks who are predominantly oral, uh, folks who are bimodal, um, and, and I guess you're, you're kind of my model, right? Because you know the ASL and um, right. also the spoken English. Um, so yeah, a real strength. And add to that your, your training and kind of the experimental, uh, experimental method. So we're very happy, um, very happy to, to have you. Um, when you read, do you, um, do you get a sense that you activate um, uh, your sign language representations? Uh, so, or, or, cause there's research to suggest that, right? Actually the better readers mm -hmm. uh, tend to activate uh, sign language representations um, when they're, when they're reading. Do you, um, do you have that um, experience? Uh, um, I will think in sign language or, uh, um, I'll either think in sign language or I'll be reading something and instead of going with the immediate English meaning of the word, sometimes if the, the, the word itself is something that I'm either, um, uh, not immediately familiar with it or, or it's taking me a little bit of time to to parse out uh you know what i'm supposed to be gathering from the entire sentence i'll sign it to myself or i'll start to to switch from english to asl to think about it in that way and then sometimes that'll open things up for me um and then i obviously have the um uh, uh what some people who who are bilingual have which is you know they can think of the word in one language but then they can't think of the word in the other language uh, if you're having a conversation sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. So there are times where I'll be having a conversation with one of my friends or um, uh, someone who, one of my friends who doesn't know sign language and I'll, you know, be mid sentence and then I'll say, oh, what's the English word for this? Then I'll just give them the sign, but then it doesn't help because they don't know, um, uh, uh, you know, what it is that, what I'm going for with that because they're unfamiliar with the language. So so there's All definitely right. some, some of that. Um, uh, both when I'm reading and when I'm uh, just uh, talking. Yeah, and the the fascinating thing is because it's um, the the two languages, right, are kind of in different modalities. Uh, you know, kind of spoken versus uh, signed. You can actually produce both simultaneously. Right. Right. Is uh, which is quite quite interesting to think about. Yeah, there's just a study that came out that looked at um, that um, and the basic argument was that um, I'm actually discussing this article in my class 
but the basic argument was that it doesn't cost the brain to turn on two languages, but it does cost the brain to turn off one of the languages, mm. uh, which is really kind of um, interesting. Um, so yeah, I'd also want to pick up on this, you know, this comment that you made in terms of individual differences. Yeah, I guess that one of the major, and I agree, there are huge individual differences and we need to understand um, uh, those individual differences. So, um, you know, why are some deaf and hard of hearing kids great readers and other uh, uh, kids struggle? Uh, and uh, I think I kind of one of the uh, major factors, of course, is, you know, early exposure to language, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's, you know, spoken or signed, uh, uh, you know, that's really, really, really important. Um, and I think that that's kind of probably one of the major factors uh, in terms of some of the struggles you see uh, in kids who are uh, deaf and hard of hearing. So hopefully this uh, project will, uh, you know, inform, uh, inform that. Um, do you know uh, of any resources uh, uh, nationwide that um, are helpful uh, for uh, children and families who are deaf and hard of hearing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a there's a few that I'd, that I'd like to to talk about. A few that I'd like to list off here. Um, so there's the the National Association of the Deaf. Um, that's the the, going to be the top one. Um, there's a lot of information on their website. Just if you search uh, National Association of, of the Deaf, you'll find it. Um, they have lots of information about uh, uh, how to, you know, in terms of raising a deaf child, uh, they have information about um, interpreting and interpreters, uh, uh, some information about how to get an interpreter even. Um, uh, they they work uh, in tandem with uh, policymakers. They'll try to get involved in um, academic settings. So something like what we're doing as well. Uh, sometimes they'll get involved as uh, and they'll try to to get funding. Um, uh, um, another one is the Office of Vocational uh, Rehab um, Rehabilitation. Um, that is a each state has one and each state uh, will provide different services, but all of them will help out with uh, children who are uh, in K-12 and um, when a parent finds out that their child is, is deaf or hard of hearing, um, they can contact VR and they can get assistance with getting hearing aids. They can get assistance with how to get an interpreter in their school. Um, with getting in uh, uh, an individualized uh, plan, um, education plan, IEP. Um, uh, I even had one uh, when I was growing up. I had a, a VR counselor and um, they ended up helping uh, with my tuition for college and they helped me try out a hearing aid. Um, so nice. uh, looking at your state um, office of vocational rehab is a great first step. Um, and then some fun things uh, too, some fun opportunities. Uh, Gallaudet University has various summer camps for kids that are deaf and hard of hearing. Um, uh, the National Technical Institute for the Deaf out of uh, RIT, out of Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, they have an Explore Your Future program uh, for deaf and hard of hearing children, uh, teenagers as well to, you know, it's an opportunity for, for deaf and hard of hearing kids to get opportunities and get experiences with what they might like to do um, if they pr pursue a, a college degree. 
Um, so things like engineering, they have what's called the tech boys and the tech girls programs. Um, uh, they have computer science programs, engineering programs. Um, Gallaudet has different programs as well. And then uh, lastly is uh, Camp Mark 7, um, which is a summer camp in the Adirondacks uh, where deaf, hard of hearing, um, deaf blind, uh, uh, hearing signers and children of deaf adults uh, spend a week doing various activities and it's all has the uh, objective of creating the community and to, you know, uh, uh, cultivate good relationships among various members of the diverse community uh, together. So, um, Obviously, most of those are on pause now because of yeah. uh, the coronavirus. But um, uh, post post COVID, those will all, I'm sure, uh, uh, restart. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, I think here in Tennessee, Nashville, uh, we have some of those opportunities as well. Uh, there are some summer camps in the metropolitan uh, area. And um, we also have a very active um, uh, uh, center here called uh, Bridges for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. There, it's one of six service centers, I guess, I think in the state of Tennessee uh, that uh, yeah, provides a variety of uh, services for um, yeah, individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing. Uh, Pre-COVID, there was also a, <laughs> it's called the Deaf Literacy Initiative uh, that was um, sponsored out of uh, Nashville Public Library, uh, where I was attending it and other members of my lab were attending it, but a, a group of uh, about a dozen or so professionals in Nashville would get together regularly to think about what can be done locally to facilitate yeah, literacy and kids who are deaf and hard of uh, hard of hearing. So lots of opportunities, you say nationally, but also a lot of things going on here uh, here in Nashville uh, as well. In fact, uh, we just opened up. Um, uh, we I didn't, but the the, the government just opened up um, the uh, a school for the deaf and hard of hearing here in Nashville. Oh, okay. uh, it was um, on the books for decades, but only recently was it uh, open. So that's in addition to the one um, in um, um, East Tennessee and the one in um, West Tennessee. So now we have a school in Middle Tennessee uh, for yeah the deaf and hard of hearing. So community's growing, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Um, if that's all for you, that's all for me. Um, so I want to say uh, thank you uh, to Dr. Booth. Uh, thank you for taking the time uh, out of your schedule to, to talk with us about uh, the work that you guys are, or the work that we're doing at the uh, Brain Development Lab. And um, I think uh, I can say confidently that we all uh, look forward to seeing the results of the project and uh, how it will most certainly have positive outcomes for members of the deaf and hard community. So uh, thank you. Great. Well, thank you for having this conversation with me and the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit, uh, you know, about uh, the project. So uh, I can't wait to get it started. Uh, oh, yeah. So we can really make a difference.
in terms of our understanding of literacy in the deaf and hard of hearing uh, at a basic science level, but also translate that to uh, the application uh, in terms of identification and um, intervention in, um, in kids who are deaf and hard of hearing. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.